This is Matt Raymond at the Library of Congress. Each year, thousands of book lovers of all ages visit the nation's capital to celebrate the joys of reading and lifelong literacy at the National Book Festival, sponsored by the Library of Congress and hosted by First Lady Laura Bush. Now in its eighth year, this free event held on the National Mall Saturday, September 27th will spark readers' passion for learning as they interact with the nation's best-selling authors, illustrators, and poets. Even if you can't attend the festival in person, you can still participate online. These podcast interviews with well-known authors and other materials are available through the National Book Festival website at www.loc.gov bookfest. It's now my honor to talk with author and veteran journalist Walter Isaacson. He is also the current president of the Aspen Institute and has previously served as CNN's chairman and CEO and editor of Time magazine. Following Hurricane Katrina, Mr. Isaacson was appointed vice chairman of the Louisiana Recovery Authority, and in December 2007, he was named chairman of the U.S.-Palestinian Partnership, a government and private sector initiative to provide economic and educational opportunities for the Palestinian people. Also an accomplished author, Mr. Isaacson has penned several books, including Benjamin Franklin, An American Life, and Kissinger, A Biography. His most recent book, Einstein, His Life and Universe, was released this past May. Mr. Isaacson, welcome. It's a pleasure to talk with you. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. If you could uh, just start out by telling us a little bit about uh, making this shift or, or uh, I guess, adding a uh, successful author to your career as a journalist. What prompted you to start writing books, and why in particular did you choose historical biographies? Well, I worked at Time Magazine, and one of the uh, problems at Time Magazine is you always have to cut things out and make them fit on a page or two. And my best friend, Evan Thomas, and I decided we wanted to write something longer. One of the things we learned at Time Magazine was to tell the history of our time through the people who made it. So we wrote a book called The Wise Men, which was about uh, a a group of friends who were statesmen during the early Cold War period. And then I went on to write other biographies because I like telling history through people. Now, why uh, uh, we're pleased, of course, that we will be having you uh, present at the National Book Festival. Why do you think it's important to participate? I think that uh, one of the joys we have as as a society is sharing knowledge and sharing ideas. And that's what happens when you have a great civilization. So when I wander on the mall or I uh, look at the National Book Festival or any of the other book festivals around this country, I say this is America at its best. And I presume your uh, readers and and fans will get a chance to hear about uh, your your book, Einstein, His Life and Universe, uh, at the book festival? Uh, I certainly plan to talk about Einstein. I talked about Benjamin Franklin last time I was there, which is a previous book. But frankly, people get to ask all sorts of questions, so who knows what they'll ask, and I'll try to answer. Tell me a little bit about your latest biography on Einstein. Einstein I took on because I had been editor of Time magazine, and we were debating who should be person of the century, and I kept thinking this has been a century of science and technology, the 20th century, and I wanted to sort of impart or describe the creativity and imagination as part of science. Those of us who are not scientists, we sometimes get intimidated by the math and the hard science, but I wanted to show that at least in the 20th century, there was a great creativity, just like art and literature has creativity that went with science. I also was impressed that Benjamin Franklin 
my biggest subject had been a great scientist. He was not just some doddering old dude flying a kite in the rain. He was doing real electricity experiments with those kite experiments. And back then, any educated person felt they should know something about science. Well, that should be true today as well. What do you find most interesting about Einstein, and was there anything in particular that surprised you as, as you went through the process of writing this book? What I find most interesting about Einstein is his imagination and creativity. He was not the best educated, perhaps not even the uh, traditionally smartest scientist of his period. People like Max Planck or Lorentz or Poincaré were all much more established. He was just a third-class patent examiner in the Swiss patent office in Bern, but he could think out of the box. He was always imaginative. He was always questioning every assumption and challenging every premise. So it was that ability to be imaginative and to be rebellious that causes him to question the most basic thing, such as whether time marches along the way Newton said, second by second, without us having to observe it. Einstein said, how do we know that? And so he questioned the basic premises of science and took us to a whole new level with his rebelliousness, his imagination, and his creativity. What surprised me about Einstein was what a rebellious human being he was. Also, his feelings about God. I assumed any scientist like Einstein didn't much, spend much time thinking about God. But Einstein was religious in his own way. He didn't believe in a personal God who would intervene in our lives. But he definitely believed in God, and he definitely thought of himself as religious. Hmm. And what... what um... What, what is it about the book you think that will appeal beyond just science lovers and, and, and uh, translate to larger audiences? Well, the book is not really a book for scientists. There's a lot of really wonderful books about Einstein written by scientists for scientists, such as Abraham Pye's Subtle is the Lord. My book is written for the rest of us, those of us who are not scientists and want to learn about the man, his life, his creativity, his imagination, and perhaps get a little bit of a sense of the science. But uh, my book is done with only two equations, one of which is the E equals MC squared. So it's, not, it's supposed to give you a taste as a non-scientist of what made his mind so creative. Now, obviously, the, the, many of the subjects that you've written about, there is uh, extensive material um, that's out there on these historical figures. How do you think your books differ from other books, and how do you bring fresh perspectives to people, at least we think we might know? Well, with the uh, Benjamin Franklin book, his papers were just really becoming public at Yale University. They were publishing them, and I think it gave us a new take. And likewise with Einstein, I got access to 4,000 letters and documents that had been under seal into two, until 2006. But what's really different from my books is I try to build on a lot of the great scholarship and a lot of the great academic research but tell it as a tale, tell it as a narrative from beginning to end. So I unashamedly say I'm a popularizer. I'm not one of the great academics of the world, but I, I try to be able to tell a good story, tell it in narrative form, and make it something that the popular uh, reading public can uh, enjoy. Talk a little bit, if you would, about your own research um, uh, perspective or, or, or procedures. And in particular, do you ever use the Library of Congress uh, for research and writing your books? Well, certainly the Library of Congress uh, is indispensable. When I did uh, the Benjamin Franklin book, there's nothing better than going to the Library of Congress and actually seeing the original drafts of the Declaration of Independence. 
Congress appointed a committee, maybe the last time they appointed a really great committee, <laughs> to write that declaration. It had Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson on it. And you see Jefferson's first draft in the Library of Congress, and then the second draft in which Benjamin Franklin has taken that wonderful sentence uh, that Jefferson wrote, which is, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, and he's crossed it out, and he's written, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And likewise, the sentence goes on, and it says that they're endowed with certain inalienable rights, and you see John Adams' handwriting, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. So those of us who are editors love seeing the editing of a sentence and have our concepts come together by good editing, and certainly it helps to go see the original document in the Library of Congress. What makes a historical figure worthy of a biography? I think you have to have a lesson when you write a biography. And my lessons always deal with creativity and imagination. We all know a lot of smart people, but smart people are a dime a dozen, and sometimes they don't amount to much. The point of my books is what makes somebody who's smart also creative, imaginative. What made Kissinger or Benjamin Franklin or Albert Einstein particularly creative? And to me, I try to explore that. That's the theme of my books. I want to ask you also briefly if you could just give us uh, perhaps whatever your unique perspective is on Kissinger. Obviously, we here at the, at the Library of Congress hold uh, uh, his collections both from government service and, and some of his personal papers as well. Well, Kissinger was a brilliant strategist when it came to balance of power. He also figured out how to play Russia and China off against each other in order to create a triangular balance. But as you will learn from those papers in the Library of Congress, Kissinger, in my opinion, did not have a good feel for the need for openness and honest discourse in a democracy. He, like Nixon, was very much uh, a believer in secrecy and doing things in the back channels. And that, I think, came to haunt him. Even in those papers in the Library of Congress, you see the phone calls, the transcripts of the phone calls, the wiretaps that Nixon had, but they also kept notes of the phone calls. And you see people being very manipulative and secret and, offer and, and ordering wiretaps or trying to plug leaks into the plumber's unit. And to me, the strength of a democracy is that people understand the foreign policy, they know what's happened, we're as open as possible about it. And in the Library of Congress, you see some of the secrecy as well as some of the brilliance. Now, you have a fairly unique perspective, not only as an author, but uh, having been a reporter and also a news executive. Is, is there any particular role that you enjoy more than, more than the others? And uh, in, in some ways, are they able to inform uh, uh, the other hats that you wear? What I like is to bring my writing background and my journalism background together so that I can do archival research, look at the wonderful transcripts in the Library of Congress or the letters in the Yale Library or at Caltech when it comes to Einstein, but also do journalism, do some reporting, ask people what they thought. Some of those documents of Kissinger in the Library of Congress if you talk to the people who wrote them, like Winston Lord, his aide, or Roger Morris, they were writing memos for the files that were destined to be in the Library of Congress, but they weren't totally true because they were sort of covering their butts for history. Mm. So 
Uh, you, it's good to bring a journalist perspective where you do interviews and you say, what did you really mean when you wrote that memo? But also you go to the archives and you read the memos. And with a good journalist and historian sensibility, you try to balance it. You try to figure out what's the real truth when you're getting it from a lot of sources in slightly different ways. I have to, uh, obviously, um, uh, talk, I think, a little bit about uh, journalism as an industry. Uh, recently, I talked with uh, Bob Schieffer in a, po in a podcast, and, and we talked quite a bit about journalism and actually quite a bit about uh, the print journalism industry. wanted to get your thoughts on, on the future. And, um, uh, you know, speaking personally, I hope we never see journalists go away, but it seems like there are so many profound changes going. Well, I'm a strong believer in print journalism. In fact, I think that if we've been getting all of our information delivered to us electronically on TV screens and computer screens, and somebody said, hey, I found a way to take some pictures and words and put them on paper and deliver them to your doorstep so you can bring them on the bus or the bathtub of the backyard, we'd say, well, this new print journalism, that's a wonderful technology. It might even replace the Internet someday. So I think print, whether it's a book or a magazine or a newspaper, is a good way to transmit and store and disseminate information. I also think that eventually we're going to feel the pinch of not having enough uh, what I would call unbiased or at least uh, people who try to be objective in the fields of journalism. If you just have bloggers but you don't have people on the ground in Baghdad or in Tbilisi or on the campaign trail saying, here's what was said and here's what happened, we'll start missing that. And whenever there's a demand for something, people will come along to supply it. So that's my optimism, is that there will be a demand for that type of journalism, and somehow or another we'll find a way to supply it and pay for it. Seems particularly in print, uh, almost every day uh, there are bad numbers, whether it's uh, job cuts or, or earnings, profits, etc. Do you think, in terms of print, we're near the bottom, and, and um, will there be some sort of major restructuring that will keep it from going any lower? Well, I think that people who uh, love print journalism, and when you look at TV celebrities or writers or anything else, they want to do something, sometimes they create a magazine. Magazine is one of the oldest forms of print journalism, and yet nowadays you see more and more magazines being invented. Likewise, somebody like Rupert Murdoch, who's been in all sorts of fields of journalism, whether you like his outlook or not, he decides what he wants to do is buy newspapers. So, yeah, I think there's a little bit too much pessimism about the future of newspapers and magazines. Let me uh, ask a little bit about the Aspen Institute. I, I think um, a lot of folks, especially inside the Beltway, are familiar with it and the work that it does, but I would suspect a lot of people who are listening to this podcast probably don't know. So what, what is the Aspen Institute? The Aspen Institute is a traditional think tank, meaning we've got public policy research programs and everything from foreign policy, the environment, and education. But also we do something that the public can participate in. Our oldest thing that we do is called the Aspen Seminar. Anybody who wants to can go to the website. You can come to Aspen or to Maryland, where we have a campus, and we're headquartered in Washington, but we do this in Aspen or Maryland. And the Aspen Seminar is just six days of reading the great books, talking to people in small groups of 20 people or so, and just ideas and values. So that's what we've been doing for 60 years, and a lot of people have decided just to take the Aspen Seminar you don't have to be invited to do so. Anybody who wants to can sign up, and especially people who like reading, it would be a great thing to do. 
In addition, we have public programs such as the Aspen Ideas Festival or the Health Conference or the Environment Forum where people who want to go to those and talk to experts in a particular field can do so as well. What are some of the, comp- the accomplishments uh, that you've had with the Institute that you're uh, most proud of? policy programs try to turn thought into action. For example, I've been involved with our Middle East strategy group. We figured out that one of the best things that you could do to have a groundwork for peace between the Arabs, between the Palestinians and Israelis, is to create a middle class in the West Bank. So we created a loan fund that gives loans of $50,000 to $500,000 to medium-sized business owners in the West Bank, in the Palestinian territories. And now we have at least 30 loans out of the door. We have $100 million in partnership with OPIC, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. So we can actually turn our thought into action. We've done that with uh, Agent Orange in Vietnam. We've done it with some ideas for restructuring the U.S. government in terms of how you do disaster relief. So we try to look at very concrete and specific things from a nonpartisan basis. And what is Teach for America? Teach for America, I have the honor to be uh, chairman of the board, but it's really run by a remarkable woman named Wendy Kopp who founded it. Teach for America is probably the largest service organization for people coming out of college. You come out of college and you make a commitment to teach for at least two years in an underserved school district. In fact, we have 500 Teach for America Corps members that went down to New Orleans and helped create that new revived school district that's now helping the city of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. But all over the country, there's maybe 6,000 Teach for America Corps members who are serving in schools. And it is, if you go to Brown University, Harvard, Howard, Many other great universities, is number the, it's either the number one or number two employer. So I think almost any college student knows what Teach for America is. It's a great way to serve your nation. I would figure it's the type of program that pays a lot of dividends, uh, not just for the communities, but also for the, uh, the graduates, the participants in the program. Right. Many, about 60% of people who are Teach for America core members somehow or another stay involved with education after their terms as teaching in the high school. Either they stay as teachers or they become principals. Or like Michelle Ree, who's the chancellor of the school system of the city of Washington, D.C., she was a Teach for America Corps member. Likewise, uh, some people, even when they go out of education, go into politics, and what they remember and what they care about is that they were once teachers in a inner city or underserved school district, and for the rest of their lives, they're dedicated to the principle that every kid in this nation deserves a decent shot at a good education. Well, Walter Isaacson, uh, we very much appreciate your time. And before we let you go, I have to ask uh, what's coming next for you in particular. Are there any more biographies in the pipeline? Oh, I'm doing a couple things. I care deeply about New Orleans, my hometown, so I'm working on a book about Louis Armstrong, New Orleans, and the creativity that came from the diversity and uh, brilliance and beauty that was New Orleans 100 years ago, and I hope it has resonance for today. Well, Walter Isaacson, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. And we are very excited to hear more from you at the National Book Festival. That is Saturday, September 27th on the National Mall in Washington from 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. 
The event is free and open to the public. For more details and a complete list of participating authors, you can visit www.loc.gov bookfest. From the Library of Congress in Washington, this is Matt Raymond. Thank you for listening.